prison and half can Oh God! Daddy, stay on your bike! Dude, burning and you don't want to turn around anymore and you know if somebody now attacks you're going to be like blown out of the water but you just go no i just keep going just keep going tied on the inside it's this solo on the barriers oh what about that now then everybody i am tom ramsey and welcome to the edge coaching podcast this podcast will provide a clear insight into the world of athletic performance and help provide a clear, relatable understanding into subject areas revolving training, nutrition, stress, psychology, and much, much more. Without further ado, let's begin. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Hello and welcome to the Edge Coaching Podcast. This podcast is number 43 and today we are going to be doing um, a bit of a, an update and a QA. and um, In the last couple of weeks I've been posting on my Instagram stories if anyone's got any questions and we hope to cover most but not all of those questions today. Um, sorry for anyone who I don't answer their question. Um, but the reason I probably did that is because it's a very similar answer to another one that was asked. Um, I'll set the scene. It is Thursday morning, 11 o'clock. And I am very, very fatigued today. I've got a lot of uh, build-up, accumulation of, of training stress over the past couple of days. Um Yesterday was a double day of training, so I did um, a gym session in the morning and then I did a group structured running session in the afternoon um, and I'm just going to pull up my training peaks right now and give you an insight into what I did last night. Um, so for, for those who don't know, um, in the last few months... I had a bit of a switch from Tom Ramsey, the cyclist, to Tom Ramsey, the runner. And I've been gradually progressing my running over the past couple of months. And now we're kind of at that stage where I've started to introduce some real structure and intensity into the plan. I've entered um, a few races, um, which uh, constitute a 10-mile race, uh, a 10K race, and a 5k race over the next couple of months and then it finishes off with um, actually a, mar a full marathon in s late September. Um, the marathon is definitely not my kind of target. Um, my target is to get my 5 and 10k times down and my 10 mile time down um, but yeah, then the marathon um, in September is kind of one of those longer term goals where I kind of want to get through it in under three hours, but it's definitely unknown territory. And I specifically haven't planned any races after that marathon just yet on the basis that I don't really know where, what it'll do to my body and how I'll feel after it and so on. So after that marathon, I'll take a month off or so um do some very very steady stuff let my body fully repair and then we can think about where i go from there um but yeah like i say we've started to bring in some real structure and intensity into my training now and just to give you an example to to give you 
full clarity on while I'm why I'm feeling so fatigued today. Yesterday was a double day. In the morning, I did a strength session, 50 minutes in total. Um, I did some single leg RDLs, some box heavy, heavy box squats. Uh, I was box squatting 140 kilos um, last yesterday morning for three sets of four. Um, I did some incline bench and some T-bar rows. Um, and uh, yeah, it was kind of trying to keep the volume fairly low, but the quality was fairly high in that. Um, but then the evening run session, um, I'll tell you exactly what I did. It was a 14 and a half mile run in total. And basically I've been invited to train with uh, a group of runners now, um, which arguably are some of the best runners in East Yorkshire. Um, and we all kind of train together on a, on a, every other Sunday um, and every Wednesday. Um, and we, yeah, we get the work done. We have really good quality in there and we really thrive off each other. We push each other along and that group environment is really, really great. Um, we all want each other to, to succeed and get better and improve. But basically, I've come into that group now as one of one of the slower ones. Um, but there is a criteria kind of thing to get into that group. It's by no means elitist. It's just a case of, um, you know, if you're not at a certain standard, you can't really train with the group because you'll be so far off the back that it won't be worthwhile. So you've got to have a certain standard, which is around um, a sub 17 minute 5K or a sub 35 minute 10k I believe I think that's the standard anyway I can't really remember um and um and yeah once you've kind of got those you get invited to train down um and uh but yeah because I've kind of only just kind of meet meet those criteria a lot of the runners are doing like 31 32 minute um 10ks and uh and and you know and kind of 15 14 15 minute 5ks so um yeah i need to um like i'm training with some very good guys and there's a few guys in there which are similar pace to me um but yeah i am one of the one of the ones that's kind of struggling like crazy and what it means is that right now when i'm doing these sessions with the guys like it's just as hard if not harder than a race um, I'm absolutely hanging for the whole thing. I've got to approach it almost like it's a race, but I get so much out of it and I'm getting, and I'm improving massively in between each session. But the session we did last night, um, <clears throat> we did a three mile warm up, a fairly progressive, including some strides. And then we did three times three minute at 5k pace, which is roughly 530 minute miling with 90 seconds walk recovery in between each effort. So that was three times three minute and at 5K pace with 90 seconds recovery between each effort. <clears throat> then we did five times 1K efforts at 10K pace, which is about 540 minute miling. Um, but the recovery is 1K float, which is basically... Um, about 45 per second, about 45 seconds per mile slower than your 10k pace. So it's like 1k on and then 1k 
slightly slower, but by no means off. Um, and we did so that total 10k of continuous running. Then we had three minutes re recovery, and then we did another three times three minute efforts at 5k pace with 90 second recovery. So it totaled about 14 and a half miles, um, and obviously cool down as well was a couple of miles. I was absolutely knackered after that, you know, especially because of the double day and so on. So today is definitely a rest day for me. The legs absolutely are in pieces. Um, and also, I mean, you know, for anyone who's trained hard, who's listened to podcast, you'll know what I mean. It's amazing how fatigue can present itself in many different ways. Um, there is peripheral fatigue. So like, you know, my muscles are hurting, but also there's, <clears throat> there's all the kind of markers of central fatigue. So, <clears throat> you know, I find really, it really hard to concentrate on a day that I'm, I've got a lot of fatigue like that. Um, my, you know, I, I just feel very, very tired. I feel like I get out of breath very easily doing simple tasks. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I'm just, I'm hungry all the time as well because I burnt through a hell of a lot of calories doing that last night. Um, so yeah, I'm just allowing my body to have that, have that rest today. I'm staying fairly active. I've got a couple of longish walks with the dog today and so on um but aside from that just just resting and and eating good food um so yeah so so that we did that session last night um today's a rest day tomorrow i'll do probably about an hour and a half easy on the bike just to spin the legs out um i'm gonna have two days off running and then the weekend i've got a couple of longer runs planned um so yeah we bring the running back in but the the running training is going well um my performances are going are going up um and the first real tester for me i guess will be actually be next week when i've got a local 10k race and the week after i've got a 5k um at doncaster as well um so quite looking forward to just seeing seeing how it how i get on um and then, yeah, then I've got a, a good few weeks of training before that 10 mile and also the marathon as well. So, um, yeah, quite looking forward to seeing how I can how I can keep progressing there. Um, other little updates. Cav has now started. Um, so those who listen to the previous podcast will have um, know who I mean. Cav Walker. He's um, he's working with the edge coaching as, a, as an assistant coach, and he's now started. He's now taken on a few athletes, um, which means that I hopefully will have a bit more time to do things like this, to keep regular content, regular podcasts, uh, YouTube videos, and so on. Um, if you check out my YouTube channel as well, um, you will see, if you haven't already, um, if you go onto my YouTube channel um, and type in The Edge, I'm doing it now. If you type in The Edge Coaching, uh, you will find my YouTube channel there. And the latest video that I've done is in-season strength training for cyclists. So basically how to lift in race season, how that, sh you know, how you should periodize it, what you should do in the gym and so on. Um, I've also got videos there such as XC race tips and best uh, foods for on the bike and so on. So yeah, check, check out my YouTube channel if you haven't already. Um, 
But yeah, let's get into the podcast. Like I say, I've got um, a few questions here which I'm going to go over. Some of them are quite, uh, I think some of them need more lengthy responses than others. Some of them are, you know, pretty, pretty short, easy, easy replies, just on my opinion. But some of them um, I gave a little bit more thought into. Um, And admittedly, I have seen these questions for a couple of days now. So although I haven't like done loads of research, I've given it a bit more thought than normal on what my reply might be. I'll just have a sip of my drink. And let's get started. The drink I'm on today is a pint of water. I'm, I'm topping up my hydration. Um, I have got some flavoured creatine powder in that water, which is actually really tasty. Bulk powders do a, a flavoured berry creatine uh, powder. And if you put that in water, oh, there's something about it. It just, it feels refreshing, hydrating and... Yeah, it's a bit better than bleak water, I guess. Okay, let's get into it. First question. What advice can you give about fasted rides? Length and intensity. So this is a, this is a really good question, actually. Um, and, and, I'm, and I'm really happy that this has come up because I think there is a lot of riders who are um, trying to implement this into their training week, fa- this being fasted riding, um, without actually understanding it properly, and the potential kind of potential consequences it might have uh, on their performance. Actually, um, now the truth is, I actually hardly ever recommend fasted training for for any of my athletes. Um, and off the top of my head, I think there is only one or two riders who I've actually suggested that they they should try and implement these rides into their schedule. Um, you know, for the for the actual proposed benefits, um, and 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 hopefully in the next five ten minutes I'll explain why that is. But um, but yeah, I mean, for those who were kind of unaware of the term, I guess fasted training. Um, involves riding or training in general on an empty stomach. So the the, the kind of typical way that m- many people would do this is to essentially usually go out in the morning. So wake up, go out in the morning without an, having eaten anything since dinner the night before. Um, and the proposed benefits, which people usually try and sell are that um, it's primarily to encourage your body to burn more fat as fuel rather than carbohydrates um, in order to kind of supposedly improve your endurance performance. Now, trying to think the best way of approaching this. To educate clients on this, I typically like to relate it to the hybrid engine in a car. So... You know, a lot of cars come with hybrid engines now um, where where the a hybrid car can switch between petrol and electricity. And you can switch between fats and carbohydrates as your energy source during rides. So it's, it's fairly similar. Now, one thing to know before I start is that 
um, you're hardly ever, more or less never, using just one of them. So even if you are using, um, even if you are, are cycling incredibly slowly, and you are having, you are, you will be pr predominantly using fat as a fuel source. You will still be using a very small proportion of carbohydrates as that fuel source as well. Similarly, at the very high end of the energy systems, when you're predominantly using uh, near enough all carbohydrate stores, you will still be using a very small amount of fat stores in the background as well. But the proportion is 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 does differ. Um, hugely depending on your intensity of the ride now dur so during higher exercise intensities and that's roughly anything over 70% max heart rate the prominent fuel source is is these carbohydrates and and lower intensities um fat is usually the pre preferred fuel source and this is because essentially carbohydrates are a much um a much quicker and more efficient way of creating energy for the body. So when the demand is higher or the, the intensity is higher, then the body always moves towards carbohydrates because fat can't be metabolized anywhere near as quick as carbohydrates. Now, like I say, it is important to note that it's not quite as definitive as, as a switch. So even during very intense periods of training, your body will still be using a very small proportion of fat and vice versa. Um, now, one of the goals of endurance riders is to become more efficient at using both of these sources of fuel. When we're fed and have carbohydrates in the system from a pre or intra training meal or snack for example our body will be able to dip in and dip out of this very easily and use up this kind of circulating glycogen when required however fasted training helps us to get better at burning this body fat simply by taking away the ability to dip in and dip out of these circulating carbohydrates and it's pretty well known that one of the main adaptations you get from fasted training is an increase in the capacity to use fat as fuel. And this is why it's recommended to do fasted rides at low intensity, as this is when your body uses more fat than carbohydrates for fuel. If you push too hard, you will start burning carbohydrates and ultimately run out of fuel. You will absolutely bonk and feel horrendous. So that is a very key point. If you're doing fasted riding, it needs to be a fairly low intensity or a very low intensity. Now, another reported benefit is what is known as mitochondrial biogenesis, which means the kind of creation of more aerobic cells called mitochondria. These proposed benefits help you essentially um, spare carbohydrates which are stored for the final stage of the race when typically the intensity starts ramping up. Now what is very important though 
as I have mentioned earlier, is that you really do need to stay at a low workload the whole time when doing doing um, these training sessions. Um, so to answer your question, this initial question that was asked, you know, you need to stick around the top end of zone one and and zone two. So about fifty six to seventy five percent of FTP. Um, and if you're training with a power meter, this is like kind of 69 to 83% of, of, of max heart rate if you're not. Um, very, very easy riding. That, and that is key. You, you wouldn't do this kind of training with any kind of intensity. It, it wouldn't have any purpose whatsoever. Now, after hearing these proposed benefits, the question is, why don't I prescribe this this form of training for most of my athletes? I can I can hear you asking that on the other end of the the headphones there. Well, this comes down to two main factors, because a lot of coaches do still prescribe this, um, and like I say, I do prescribe it now and again for certain athletes. But why is it that I don't prescribe it for most of my athletes? These two main factors as to why I don't prescribe it for most of my athletes, come down to training specificity and also time availability. Now, firstly, the vast majority of my clients and what I would assume also covers about 90% of the listeners to this podcast will either be time trialists, mountain bike cross-country racers, crit racers, or compete in kind of regional road races, which nas- which last no longer than around three hours-ish in duration. Now, for all of those races, the intensity is exceptionally high throughout. And you are nearly always working at a kind of work rate which supersedes this threshold of where you are predominantly using fat as fuel. With all of that fasted training in the world, you won't be able to get it to a level where it will start to fuel those kinds of intensities. And therefore, there is no need, in my opinion, to try and improve this. Fasting severely limits what you can do in training as a cyclist, as it only works with easier rides in zone two you can't use it for your high intensity intervals training sessions and in fact too much fasted training would actually reduce your ability to burn carbohydrates during these races anyway which will actually limit performance at the higher end of things so in essence if you did too much fasted training you would get so efficient at burning fat as fuel you would um, get less efficient as burning carbohydrates of fuel. And there's been many studies to prove that. Um, But going back to that first point, if you're going to be racing at an intensity where you're never going to be using predominantly fat as fuel anyway, then why try and get better at it? Why try and improve it so much that, that, um, that you're trying to, trying to, to, to kind of strip in that energy system? Because, in my opinion, for, for the majority of people, it would just be a complete waste of time. Now, 
I like to imagine, kind of imagine, sorry, tongue twisted there. <laughs> I like to imagine enzymes as kind of um, builders on a building site, so to speak. And we have builders that break down fat and we have builders that break down carbohydrates. So imagine buildings on a building site and you've got them there with their um, still saw and they're there with the uh, jackhammer and all sorts. You've got certain builders which are breaking down fat and certain builders that are breaking down carbohydrates. If you do all your rides fasted, then you will start to hire more builders to knock down the fat walls. But you will also start to lay off and sack the builders who break down carbohydrate walls. Now, when you take on carbs during a race, you will find you don't have enough builders to break down those carbohydrate walls. You will have you will be significantly less efficient at breaking down those carbohydrate walls. And that's why you need to train regularly with carbs. If you're going to be racing with carbohydrates in the system to fuel those high energy system pathways, you need to be training with them as well. And you need to experiment with what works, the, 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 the kind of quantities which work and so on, which is a, you know, a whole, whole different subject area. Um, if you also couple this with the fact that the majority of folk have full-time jobs and therefore have limited training time available, then I would say that there isn't really any rationale at all for introducing fasted training into your training program. Um, now, one counter-argument is that you could introduce fasted training into your active recovery days. And this is something that I have done in the past and I do do now and again um, in recent recent years um, or you know the, the days where you're heading out for a very steady couple of hours in the morning um, because you have a, a harder day following the, the next day now I can see why this might make sense for some people um, and uh, and especially so for example for some, for some people, it would, would work really well on like a Saturday morning, for example. If you are um, a working man Monday, Monday to Friday and then it comes to the weekend and normally you've got a really hard ride planned on a Sunday um, and the Saturday is normally a family day, but you normally try and fit in one to two hours of easy riding on the Saturday morning and you usually try to make sure that it doesn't get in the way of family plans. You usually try and get up nice and early on the Saturday morning and get that done. And you're out the door for half six, seven in the morning. Well, I can understand why that, why you would potentially do that as a fasted ride. Or at least start it as a fasted ride. Because you don't necessarily have time to get up, have your breakfast, let it digest. Um, and you just find it more time efficient to get up. And within half an hour, you're on your bike after a quick espresso, get on your bike and get riding. I can understand why that would be a benefit. Um, if it's low intensity and then you either have your breakfast when you get back or you snack on the bike, um, you know, I can see where that would make sense. However, we also need to consider um, is that fasted training has a lot bigger 
overall stress associated with with it than 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 fed training does so in essence it takes your body longer to recover from um and it may hamper your things like your immunity um it it also elevates your cortisol response to training and over time chronic high cortisol levels can drive immune stress and inflammation um it's also been shown to increase muscle t- tissue damage break da- and breakdown, um, you know, which leads to potential losses in lean mass. Um, so, you know, it's not just a case of, oh, I can do this ride fasted because I'm going low intensity. It's only short, no problem at all. You've also got to consider that doing that in itself can affect your long-term recovery. So if it's meant to be a recovery ride, and you're doing it fasted, you're just driving that stress even harder. So to summarize, um, to answer this individual's question, it is up to the individual to decide what works best for, for you and your body. Um, but you need to consider the implications of fasted training on your on your actual training session and long-term health. For me personally, I only do fasted training on the days when it works better to do it um, from a, from like a timing perspective. But I will never go out of my way to kind of do these as a specific training session and would always prefer to be fed because I can, I know that I'll always get much better quality out of my system. Um, I also, I always know that I'll get um, much higher performances and also I know that I'll, I'll feel a lot better um, post-exercise as well. So I'm just going to make sure I've answered this guy's question. What advice can you give about fasted rides, length and intensity? My advice would be probably you don't need to do them. And length and intensity, if you are going to do them, make sure they're no longer than about an hour and a half. And intensity always needs to be low. Always. Also, make sure you feed well after them. Because if not, massive cortisol response massive recovery required after that and it'll affect your immunity and so on question number two that was a very lengthy answer by the way they're not all going to like that <laughs> um i just thought i would get get that out there because it's a question that often comes up it's a question that a lot of people have very limited knowledge on and i'd like to give my honest opinion on it question number two is what is the importance of scheduling full rest days? Good question again. I think the answer to this is that it's hugely dependent on the individual. There is many, many individual differences. Depending on what else you've got going on in your life, how stressed and busy you are at work, um, if your work is sedentary or active and things like that. So for example, um, for me, um, my day-to-day work, like probably 70 or 80% of my work is actually desk-based. So I spend a lot of time sat or stood at a desk. Now, I know that's not great for general health and I also know it's not great for 
my mental state. So although I absolutely definitely schedule in rest days or easy days, if you follow me on Strava, you'll soon start to notice then that on my rest days, I sometimes go out on the bike for an hour or um, or something like that just to keep the blood flow, keep my body moving and so on. So for me personally, I very, uh, very rarely have a full rest day unless that rest day nicely coincides with the day where I'm naturally very active. So for, for example, today, I know I need a full day of rest today. Like even the thought of doing a simple bike ride today is just not nice. However, I did a long dog walk this morning for about 50 minutes an hour. And I'm also planning to do a long dog walk with my wife later on for about an hour, an hour and a half. So because I know I'm going to get those two long dog walks in, I've also washed the van today. It sounds daft, but little things like that. Because I've kept fairly active today, I know that I'm not itching to do something. However, if I was literally sat at a desk all day, nine till five, if you've got a desk job, and I was sedentary all day, I would be, I would have itchy feet and I would want to move a bit. I would feel like I need to kind of get things circulating. I would need to start moving my body a bit. And therefore I would probably try and schedule in, you know, um, either going to the gym and just doing some very light mobility work, some yoga, some Pilates, some light lifting, um, or a very easy ride. Um, now for me, going back a step for me personally, although I, although I have done a bit of conversion recently to do more, more running, one thing I will say is that for me, because I haven't got a massive foundation of running in my legs, I know that I will never have a rest day where I do a run because running takes a lot more out of my legs than cycling does. I can do an easy two or three hour ride and my legs can still recover if it's easy enough. Whereas for running, even if I do three or four miles, it's still um, inflicting damage to my muscles. Whereas someone who's been running for years and years and years, they can do a three, four, five, six mile run and it not feel like any stress whatsoever. But one thing I will say on the whole subject of this is that we do hear a lot of talk about doing the work. You know, if you do a quick Google search um, and, and uh, you know, it reveals many variations of the same theme with regards to athleticism and you know, improving performance, you'll see, you'll see loads of shitty little quotes, which say things like, um, when you have a goal, you have to do the work, no excuses and, um, show up, do the work and only rest days are for the week or whatever it might be. Um, now these slogans and these motivational quotes, they can inspire and motivate people. They don't, they certainly don't motivate me to be honest. <laughs> it's not because I see through it. Um, but it's only through doing the right work and the appropriate rest and recovery, 
which actually makes you faster and stronger. And that, I mean, you know, that that's not nothing new. You know, I'm sure everyone who's listening to this podcast will understand the basic premise of adaptation, you know, stimuli and adaptation. Um, but rest and recovery is arguably one of the most vital parts of a training plan. Um, you know, any coach, you take any coach, um, any coach can drive an athlete into the ground. Any coach can, you know, just absolutely sabotage an athlete and set them a ridiculous training plan and make them kind of uh, bring them down to the knees by not allowing appropriate recovery between sessions. The hard part of being a coach, the harder part of being a coach, is getting the balance right between training and recovery. Between the stimuli, the adaptation, and the recovery that's that's needed to adapt in the right way. Um, and every single person is different. And every single person will need different recovery days. I've got athletes who um, only train three times a week. And their total training hours is about four four hours they do two yeah they do three three sessions a week they do two times one hour sessions in the week and they do a two hour ride at the weekend and that is them done that's that's their that's their weekly hours i've also got athletes who are training um i'm just trying to think i've got athletes who are like 16 17 18 hour weeks um and they can cope with that. A lot of it's to do with their other life stresses. A lot of that is to do with their age. A lot of that is to do with their genetics. Um, a lot of that is due to how long they've been training for. Um, some of those athletes who are on 18-hour weeks need a specific rest day in there. And some of them don't. Um but if I was to go and give that guy who's on four-hour weeks an 18-hour week, he wouldn't even get through one week. Um, and um, and yeah, I mean, like I say, we're all we're all different. But to answer the question, um, how how important uh, are full rest days? Obviously, it's a very open-ended question. It, it it massively depends on 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 you and and. Um, and what works for you i would say for most people they are important um but it depends on what you constitute a rest day because for example if you're a cyclist and you constitute a rest day as a day off the bike could you go to the gym and do some very very light mobility and core strength work without it being detrimental to your weekly recovery? Yes, you probably could. Could you go to the gym and lift, lift some very heavy weights and call it a rest day because you're not actually cycling? Probably not. <laughs> um, like I say, for me, I don't have full rest days very regularly. I only have them roughly once every 10 days. That being said, I obviously have days which are very, very, very easy. So I don't have full rest days where I literally lay on the sofa or just go do a couple of 
walks every now and again. However, I do have many days in the block where I will just do an hour of zone one cycling or I'll go to the gym and do some mobility and core strength work. I hope I've answered your question. I'll just take a sip of my drink. And yes, I am exaggerating my slurping a little bit for the mic. Question three. Weekend back-to-back races. Do I taper for two weeks? Um, it depends. Uh, it depends what the race is. If you've got two Ironmans in a weekend then and your training has gone incredibly well and you're at your absolute peak but you're carrying a lot of fatigue then yes probably tape of two weeks if you aren't carrying too much fatigue and if if they are a back-to-back race weekend with a couple of crit races on the bike or a couple of time trials, then no, there's definitely no no need to taper that long. There's there's many different considerations for this. It depends, you know, if if this is your only, if this is you done, if you if you've got weekend back to back race, and then after that, that's you done for the season. You've got no other races to aim for or to consider. Then yeah, I'd probably say you need to prioritize that taper and prioritize feeling as fresh as possible. But equally, if you've got races to come for after that, that two weeks of, of, of tapering might negatively impact your longer term form. Um, there's very, very little examples of athletes that I coach where I do um, give a full two week taper. Even to be fair, for me, even with, I mean, it depends what you constitute a taper, I guess. Um, but for me, even my triathletes who are doing Ironman distance, they can start to notice a proper taper for about a week and a half. That being said, two weeks is about where we start to to start lowering volume progressively. So yeah, it's it's a two week taper, but it's only the last week where the volume is really knocking down. Um, so unfortunately, I can't answer your question. If you go back to podcast number 18, I have done a full podcast on tapering, um, how to do it, when to do it, examples and so on, what should be included in a taper. So please go and listen to that. But but yeah, generally speaking, two weeks of taper isn't required. I would say a week is normally required, but it massively depends on the requirements of those races and what form you're in now. Um, so yeah, that's probably my best answer. Question number four, as a crit racer, what are the key power numbers to focus on improving? I.e. sprint, FTP, maximum aerobic power, VO2 max, and so on. Um, well, crit racing is, um, is very fast paced close circuit rate racing basically um 
for anyone who doesn't know, a crit race is typically a loop or a circuit um, that we use for crit racing is typically a loop which is um, about a mile to three miles long. Um, And athletes kind of lap the course for many times from anywhere between 30 minutes to 60 minutes, depending on your category. Um, uh, these races are characterized by their very high speed and, and dynamic tactics as well. Um, but also very sustained intensity. Um, and these racings, you know, from a spectator's perspective are very exciting to watch. Um, I think one thing that think people think when they do crit racing is that it'll be very on and off. It'll be very um, punchy. It'll be very rest and recover um, and then big effort. It's, it's usually not like that. It's usually very all out all the way through. And the higher your t- category, the more all out it is, <laughs> obviously. So if you go to a fourth cat only crit, typically you will get a lot of variation in pace where there is a lot of soft tapping for lots of times everyone's watching each other where they're always trying to recover because they're not they're not able to do multiple moves but then if you go to a um you know an e12 race uh, for example otley that was just on yesterday last night that is just full gas from the gun and you get these big teams who are just stringing it out, keeping the pace high, not letting the sprinters get up to the front and so on. Um, so yeah, it does vary a lot. But to be competitive in a crit, you need you need lots of different components of fitness. You need a solid aerobic and anaerobic fitness. You need excellent sprint timing. You need the ability to repeat lots of hard, short efforts. Um, and the best way to attain this kind of fitness is with a, a very structured training plan, which is crit specific. Um, a crit specific plan is is kind of compromised of workouts that progressively target the energy systems used in this type of racing with integrated rest and strategically organized training stress. Um and, uh, and yeah, so there's a whole plethora of different types of workouts that you would find in, you know, a typical crit racers training plan. Um, you would have anaerobic capacity work where you're doing like uh, relentless um, efforts which last between 30 seconds to three minutes long, but they would typically have very short recoveries in between them. So things like um, Russian steps, for example, that would be a very typical crit racers training plan where you're doing like uh, 15 second sprints, 30 second sprints, 45 second sprints and one minute sprints with um, like a one to one work to rest ratio. Um, And you would do that for a period of time up to an hour. Um, But specifically limiting the recovery is quite a critical one for a crit racer because that is one of the main elements of a a crit race is that you you get very little recovery before you have to go again. Another typical workout for a, a crit racer would be like sustained VO two max efforts. Um, so these are one of the the most effective ways to train this specific power um, and increase your ability to maintain high power outputs repeatedly. 
And, and then these workouts are very challenging and fatiguing, but they create a very high training stimuli in a very minimal time. So uh, that a typical VO2 max training session would be, for example, four times three minute efforts at around 120 to 140% of FTP um, with a minimum of like four minutes recovery. So you'll give yourself a good plentiful recovery between each effort to prioritize the quality in the effort itself. So that's slightly different to those other intervals where you're limiting, specifically limiting recovery. Another very typical workout would be like um, a sustained power effort where, um, for example, you're doing um, a break or an attack, but then you're having to recover at like a sustained effort. And that will mimic what you would typically find in a crit where you might have to respond to a stimuli and then try and recover the best you can, but recover while you're not fully off. So you might do 30 seconds or a minute of very hard effort, and then you'll try and recover at around your FTP for like four or five minutes. Um, that's a, a very typical example. And then you could also do like, you know, for example, some sweet spot efforts with surges in there as well that's another um another example i actually set in my training i set uh crit races like race simulation sessions so if they haven't got a race for a few weeks we'll do rate specific race simulation sessions where um if i pull up training peaks now let's have a quick look um so yeah, I've got a crit simulation session here, which is basically mimicking a, a typical crit as closely as possible. It, it, it compromises loads of different um, small efforts with different recoveries in there to very closely mimic what you can find in a crit. And you can also be very specific if you wanted to and um, mimic a specific course as well. Um, question number two. Five, and I'm going to try and keep these a little bit quicker now because I appreciate how quick time is going. Um, what's your views on training for a 10 to 12 hour mountain bike race? Building up to six to seven hour training rides back to back on Saturday and Sunday or building up to one 12 hour training ride on the Saturday and having the Sunday off? Good question. Um, it massively depends on many different factors, if I'm honest. Uh, what I would do personally, purely answering that specific question, obviously we, you have to factor in what you're doing midweek as well. So for example, um, if midweek you're getting in long rides as well, or if midweek you're getting in short, high intensity rides and so on, um, I would assume based on what you're saying here, um, based on normal population that midweek, you're probably doing a couple of shorter, higher intensity rides, maybe some intervals and so on. Um, and then you're, yeah, you're using your weekend to kind of capitalize on some, on, on some longer riding. Um, what I would make use of actually is uh, just using frequency um, as as an extra training stress in itself. So you've specifically asked me here whether you should build up to 
six or seven hour training rides back to back um, or building up to one 12 hour training ride on the Saturday and having a Sunday off. I would, in that scenario, suggest that um, back to back days of six or seven hour rides would be better um, purely because you are asking uh, for extra frequency from your body. So although you've got the same total volume, so you've got, you know, um, 12 or 14 hour um, in the legs, um, regardless, you've got a higher frequency. So what that will mean is that you're able to get more quality out of both of those rides. Because I would say that if you're just doing 12 hours of training on one day, the quality for the last few hours will be negatable. It, it won't be there, um, regardless of how well you've fueled. Obviously, on your race day, when you've got a race day coming up, you can taper into it, you can fuel more efficiently, you've got the uh, extra kind of incentive of the day, um, and you'll be able to, to fight through it a lot more. Um, but yeah, I would say that, that uh, two two training rides back-to-back of six or seven hours would definitely be better. Um, but it does depend on many factors. Next question, Dolby Red Route, any strategy for getting sub two-hour time on an XC full suspension bike? <laughs> um, I don't really know what the relevance of that XC full suspension bike is. Um I mean, you've you've said you've got an XC full suspension bike. So to be honest, I would argue that that is the best bike for Dolby Redroot. Um, obviously, it depends what type of bike it is. But 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 yeah, if you were to present me a top end XC full sus bike or a top end hardtail full sus bike i would suggest that uh, the full suspension bike would be would be better for dolby red route generally um some would argue that hardtail is better but um and i race a hardtail personally but i think a full sus would be be slightly better for dolby red um any strategies for getting a sub hour a sub two hour time well to be honest mate <laughs> it it mainly comes down to two things your fitness and your skill level. Um, I personally have set like a one hour 34 or one hour 35 time around Dolby. So I can do it. Um, if you ask me to do that today or tomorrow, I don't think I'd manage a 134, 135. I think I'd be probably five minutes off that or so. Um, but equally, there's been times when I've not been very fit and I'd be I'd be nowhere near that. Um the, the, the strategies are to go hard. It's like, you know, any any race performance, I guess. Strategies which will help that, assuming you are, assuming you've got the fitness level to be able to do it. Um, strategies to help that is to A, not doing it on a Sunday morning or a Saturday morning where you're going to have loads of people on the trail because I promise you, you will meet many families, many slower riders, which will get in your way. And you don't want to be that wanker who's like, move out of my way, rider on your left, on a Sunday morning when 
families are trying to enjoy a bit of um, a bit of mountain bike route together, and you're being that guy who's who's just trying to get a, a Strava time. Um, so don't go on a Saturday or Sunday morning at like nine o'clock, ten o'clock, eleven o'clock in the morning, because you you're going to get loads of traffic. So either go really late on in the day on a weekend, or really early in the morning, like seven o'clock in the morning. Um, or go on a weekday, and you're definitely going to have a lot more, a lot less traffic. Pick a day which is dry. Um, definitely don't pick a day where it's wet because that can easily add on five minutes of the time, if not more. Also, don't go in like spring when they've had a lot of rain because what you'll find is that a lot of the corners are overgrown with grass and weeds. They haven't necessarily cut them back yet. And it means that a lot of the corners are blind, so you can't carry your momentum the same way. But also another key point of information is to know the course before you go and for a full gas effort. So I don't know if you're a regular to Dolby or not, but if you don't know the, the, the track very well, then go a few weeks and do a few training rides easy to try and learn the corners and know what's coming up. Because there's a lot to be said for things like gear selection and momentum in the corners. I know full well that the only reason I can do a 135 is because I know what's coming up every time I approach a corner, every time I approach a descent. I know to get the right gear before the before the hill. I know to I know certain corners I don't have to touch my brakes because it's you know a nice a nice smooth corner. I know certain lines where. I know to take the left-hand side on a, on a descent, for example, where it's not obvious to go left at the start, but I know to preempt the next section, I need to go as far left as possible, and so on. I know to, when to use my dropper post, and so on. Um, so there's a lot to be said for knowing the course, for sure. Um, any other little bits of tips? I mean, aside from the obvious, you know, making sure you've eaten something beforehand, um, jack yourself up on a bit of caffeine beforehand and so on. Um, other little small tips, I guess, is don't bother taking any puncture repair stuff or any, any kit with you. A little disclaimer, it's completely off your own back if you decide to listen to me or not. <laughs> but um you're never that far away from the car. There's always a good escape route or there's always someone that can lend you a pump, for example. If you're going for a flat-out loop of the XC route, um, if I've ever done it, I've just taped a tube to the bottom of my frame and then I've not taken a pump or anything, kept my pockets clear, keep as little weight as possible on your person um, and then if I do get a puncture, I can rely on someone to, to lend me a pump because um, that's kind of, you know, time over with. Quick sip of the drink. I'm going to roll through these next ones. I read somewhere about a shift from the 80-20 rule to a slightly higher intensity. Thoughts? So for those who don't know, the 80-20 rule is basically a very... Uh, common polarized view of training where you do 80% of your training at very low intensity so uh, low zone 2 or, or round zone 1 and 20% of your training overall training time at high intensity anywhere above LT um, the question reads I read somewhere about a shift from this to a slightly higher intensity thoughts 
Um, yes, there's some been some re latest research suggesting that you can uh, you can do a little bit more higher intensity, and and change that percentage rule to about 70-30 and have some benefits in doing so. The my take on it is is that it's hugely hugely individually variant. So every single person will have um, a different a different method which works well for them. Um, a lot of that depends on someone's time availability. Now that being said, it sounds fairly obvious now that I'm saying it, but if someone is racing crits, and I'm saying this because the person that's asking the question I know mainly races crits. Um, if someone's racing a crit and they've only got five hours in the week to train. Now, I know this isn't you at the time that's asked this question, but if you've only got five hours in the week to train and you're doing the 80-20 rule, and let's say that um, of those five hours in the week, 80% of five hours is four hours. So of those five hours that you've got in a week, you're suggesting, or that rule is suggesting that, that four of those hours should be very low intensity. So if we just simply split it up into an hour, an hour a day. So let's just say as an example, this guy takes um, of five times one hour rides he does. He takes Monday and Wednesday off and the other days he does one hour each day. One hour of low intensity riding four days a week and then one hour of high intensity riding the other day in a week. Obviously, it's not going to necessarily look like that, um, but I would argue that that is definitely, definitely not the most efficient way for that guy to train. He would have much more um, benefit in switching that round, if anything, so that uh, three of those days are high intensity and two of those days are low intensity. Um on the other hand, if you've got a, d a guy who can train 20 hours in a week, um, giving him 16 hours of uh, very low intensity riding and four hours of very high intensity riding would likely work quite well. Now, there is some new research to suggest that, yeah, even for that person actually uh, including a little bit more of moderate intensity riding um, and and proportioning that out as a, as a kind of more even spread up the uh, up the intensity spectrum might work better um, I, I've read certain research papers on it recently uh, I, it was only about a week ago actually I read a lot of extensive reviews on on this um, and the jury's still out um, namely due to individual differences, which I, which I just explained. Um, but all I can say from a coach's perspective is that, that, that everyone I coach is very different. Um, it's massively individually variant variability. And, um, and yeah, I guess if you're not being coached and you're, um, dictating your own training, then 
it's finding out what works for you. You know, if you're doing an 80-20 split roughly at the minute, um, you could experiment with doing a little bit more intensity and seeing how it affects you. Can you recover from it? Because ultimately, if you can recover from it, the same volume of training, but slightly more intensity than you have been doing, then ultimately, it's probably going to be an ex, um, a bigger training stress and thus um, increase your form. It will, it will essentially shock your body into, into adapting a little bit better if you can recover from it. But be very mindful that you might not be able to recover from it and you might just get accumulated training stress and uh, and and that'll lead to overtraining. So um, I'm hope hopefully that that kind of answers that question. That's my thoughts on it. Three more questions to answer on days involving gym and riding. Which session should come first in different scenarios? Um, good. Another good question. Um, I've actually done a YouTube video on this very recently. Uh, if you haven't already seen it, please look back to my new YouTube channel because I did talk fairly extensively about it. Now, the truth is, again, this is massively individually. Um, uh, it's different, different for every person. Um, in different scenarios, so let's let's present a few different scenarios. If you having a day where the cycling is very low intensity um, and uh, yeah let's just talk about it in two different scenarios because that's kind of the, the easiest way to do it um, so if you're doing a double day and you're doing gym on the same same day as you're riding let's assume that generally speaking you're prioritizing the on the bike work because at this time of year, you should be. Um, two scenarios for you. First scenario, you, you're doing a gym session and the bike session is very low intensity. So let's say it's going to be two or three hours at zone one, zone two riding. In that example, because of the energy systems which we're utilizing in both the different types of training, I would always typically prioritize the strength work in that scenario because you can do the strength work, you can have a good feed after and that low intensity riding later in the day will, if anything, just help spin the legs out and it won't be negatively affected by that prior lifting. You won't be on the bike doing zone one, zone two riding and thinking, crikey, I can't get an appropriate intensity or I can't get an appropriate training stress out of this ride because I've, I've lifted heavy previous previous in that day. On the other end of that spectrum, the other example is that you've got a lifting session one, one day and also you've got a high intensity bike session that same day. Now, if I'm honest, I would never typically prescribe that very often because those are testing two fairly similar energy systems. And no matter which way you put that, they will always, one of those sessions will always be compromised. That is very similar to what I did yesterday. And that's why I'm so fucked today. Because <laughs> I lifted heavy in the morning and then I did some running intervals later in the day. Now, for me, the reason I did that is because my work, my week fit well like that. 
and I know that I was resting today. So I basically just smashed my energy systems to pieces, smashed my legs to pieces on the basis that I've got a couple of easy days. For most people, I don't generally advocate it that often. It depends how your week lays up. Um, but in that scenario, it really depends where you want to get the most quality out and what intervals you're doing on the bike. For me, what I used to do is I always, always used to do my gym session in the morning, have a big, big carbohydrate feed after that gym session, give it a couple of hours for that to digest. And then there was a sweet spot for me of around an hour to two hours post session where it was almost like a, a super compensation effect and my legs generally felt pretty good on the bike. If I left it any longer than that, I would start to fatigue, I would start to feel crap and it wouldn't work if I tried to do any bike work. So in that example, gym in the morning, good carbohydrate feed, roughly two hours later on the bike. But again, that might be different to other people. That might not work for other people. And again, it depends where your priority is because if your priority is the bike work now, you've already done what you need to do in the gym and the gym is more just um, maintenance stuff, then in that scenario, I would do gym in the morning, uh, sorry, bike in the morning. So wake up, breakfast, let it digest, bike, you know, mid-morning. Then again, another feed, let yourself recover holistically and then do the gym basically as late in the day as you possibly can. Um, and go through the motions. I Hopefully that answered your question. Take a sip of the drink and then two more questions. What's your opinions on e-mountain bikes? Um, short and sharp answer. My opinions on e-mountain e bikes are they are great. Take a 64-year-old 64-year-old dad who enjoys riding with his lads. His lads are now 30-odd, and they're much fitter than his dad. Uh, their dad. Well, the dad can still ride with the lads and enjoy, enjoy it without feeling like he's holding them back. He doesn't have to compromise their ride by being too slow at the climbs and so on. Um... I, if I'm honest, I don't have much, many negative things to say about e-mountain bikes. Um, I'm not one of those guys who will say, oh, they're wrecking the trails, oh, blah, 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 blah. Even on Strava now and so on for your Strava weenies, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a specific category for them, which I, I, I wish people used properly um and and more often when they are riding e-mountain bikes but yeah i think i think e-mountain bikes are great um I, i'm all for them i think generally i think people are too quick to get one so i think there's a lot of people who are out there where their fitness is starting to de decline and with a bit more effort they could just bring it back up again but they just think oh i'll just get an e-mountain e bike to make things easier um, and then, yeah, suddenly they've just made, made things easier and, and thus, um, they don't, um, they don't need to work as hard on the bike. There's also an argument to suggest that they work just as hard, but they go faster. Um, 
but it's all relative. Like, you know, what's next? I guess once once you've once you're going faster and you're getting up the climbs easier, then you'll get to a point where that's hard as well. And then you'll need <laughs> need more assistance. So it's like what I will say about e-mountain bikes is if you can, stay off them as long as you possibly can. Because then when you do really need them, when you be you know, you when you really need them then it'll be definitely worthwhile and it'll be worthwhile holding off. Like my dad's a classic, classic example. My dad is in his late fifties, mid to late fifties. And he's toying with the idea of getting one. And I keep saying to him, you know, at the minute you're still fit enough to get around Dolby in just over two hours. Um, you have plenty of fun doing it and you don't actually tend to ride with them many other people at the minute. So you're not holding anyone back by doing it if, if you ride with people who are faster. I would love for him to have an e-mountain bike to ride with me because I would be more keen to ride with my dad now because he wouldn't be holding me back. But equally, I say to my dad, look, you've still got the fitness to not need one. Um, so why spend seven, eight grand on one when you don't need to at the minute? Uh, wait, wait for uh, a bit longer. Um, have I got any other, other opinions on it? I guess my only other opinion on, on, is it, on it is if I was a mountain bike racer, if I was a pure thoroughbred mountain bike racer um, and I lived in a place where I could ride a mountain bike in the trails all the time and that was the best way of training, which it would be. You know, if I lived right next to Dolby Forest and, and I could ride a mountain bike in Dolby like every other day from my backyard... Um, then I would probably get an e-mountain bike because if I've had a horrifically hard training ride on a Monday and a Tuesday, and by the Wednesday I'm absolutely knackered and I need like an active rest day, I can still jump, I can then jump on my e-mountain bike instead of my normal bike and have like a, an easy rest day ride where I can easy soft tap up the climbs, let the e-mountain bike do most of the work, um, and then still just like work on my skills on the descents. Um, but yeah, that's obviously if I, if I was in that scenario and also if I had lots of money. Last question. Because I'm getting bloody hungry. It's, it's lunchtime today. Um, lunchtime now, sorry. Uh, last question. Protein or carbs for recovery? <laughs> um Okay, uh, this is, um, I, I think I'm pretty sure, I can't think what podcast I've covered this, but I have covered this at length in a previous podcast. Um, it's a bit of a, I won't call it a daft question, but it's a bit of a, an off question because the, the answer is both. But there's definitely, in terms of recovery, if we're talking about directly post-workout recovery, there's definitely much more of an emphasis on carbohydrates. So if I think about what you're probably trying to ask, I guess, you know, if you've just finished a hard workout, should I be prioritizing protein or should I be prioritizing carbohydrates? You're talking about two different, completely different um, reasons for taking on a macronutrient. Now, um, what should a recovery meal or a recovery shake or a recovery drink look like? Well, the most important ingredients to 
a recovery meal directly post-workout. So let's let's think about this as a scenario. You've just done an incredibly hard ride. You're almost at the point of bonking. You've been out for three hours. You've done loads of intensity. You come back, you're knackered. You come into your kitchen. You need a recovery meal or a recovery shake to kickstart your recovery. If you don't, if you miss out on that opportunity, you're doing yourself an injustice. But what should that recovery drink look like? Because there's a lot of misconceptions there. Now, the most important ingredients, if you were to make a recovery shake and you're in that state, the most important ingredients are fluid and carbohydrates. Hydration and carbohydrates. That's the two most important things. You need to get, you need to replace hydration and rehydrate because you're likely going to be a bit dehydrated as well, even if you've been taking on plenty of fluid during the ride. But also you need to get fast digesting, readily available carbohydrates into the system as quickly as possible. Second to that, you need to be thinking about electrolytes and protein. You want you your you want to kind of look out for a recovery drink or creating a recovery drink with more carbohydrates than protein. So something like, and by research, a four to one ratio um, is is appropriate, and what we found to be most appropriate um, to kind of prioritize recovery. Um, now. I won't go into loads of detail because we I've done a big podcast on this um, before and I'm actually just going to quickly scroll through. Yeah, there's a couple of podcasts which you might want to listen to that I've already done. Number nine, which is nutrition for health versus nutrition for per- performance. Um, and also number four, which is nutrition 101 food basics. Um, they, will, they will both give you a bit of a, an insight into this. And to be fair... In all fairness, I will probably do another podcast which is purely nutrition for recovery or, or how to recover from training and so on and so on and so forth. But in short, you need to prioritize carbohydrates and fluid. You also need to be thinking about an amount of protein in that um, drink as well um, to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, but also to help uh, the uptake of carbohydrates into the system. Now, and again, I'm going to keep this answer as short as possible because I'm going to do a big podcast on it um, in a few weeks, probably actually thinking about it. On that scenario, you've come back from a ride, you're absolutely zonked. What I do, I'll, I'll give you exactly what I do. I go into my cupboard, I'll get out my massive blender bottle, which is like a, you know, like a Nutribullet blender, and I make my own recovery shake. That recovery shake, I start off with um, about half a pint of cow's milk and half a pint or a pint of uh, plant-based milk. So I put in like oat milk or soya milk. Um, the reason I, I do half and half, like half cows and half other, is that ca- if I have too much cow's milk, I've noticed that it gives me some GI issues. But cow's milk is great because it's got good electrolytes in it. It's got a little bit of protein in it. It's got good sugars and carbohydrates in it. You're already providing your body with with certain nutrients that it needs. The rest I top up with like oat milk or soya milk. 
um, because again, that has some good nutrients in it, but it's not as calorific as cow's milk um, and it keeps the flavor. If I just did water, it wouldn't, wouldn't taste as good. Um, so I'm coming in, as I'm making this shake, I'm also drinking a pint of water with an electrolyte tab in there. So as I'm making this shake, it maybe it probably only takes me about two minutes to make. But often I've also I'm necking a pint of with water with electrolyte as I'm making this shake. And this is the reason I'm saying this is because is it's like my protocol basically after any hard ride. So we've got the milk. Um, then I go into my cupboard with all my supplements in there, and I add three scoops of. Um, sorry, three to four scoops, depending on how knackered I am, how how much of a demand for, for recovery there is, three to four scoops of carbohydrate mix. I usually just use a maltodextrin mix of carbs because maltodextrin is nice and cheap, fast into the system, convenient, big bag of it for a few quid, three scoops of, three or four scoops of maltodextrin, and then one scoop of um impact whey isolate um which is usually i just get, get a strawberry flavor but you can get whatever flavor you want and then i also add in um like half of a frozen banana and sometimes some frozen fruit um which gives me a, obviously a bit more fructose gives a bit of flavor to the shake and the reason i use frozen fruit in that shake is that when i blend it up it gives more of a like a milkshakey thicker consistency i then blend all of that up for a, like a couple of minutes while i'm finishing my pint of water electrolyte water and then i nick neck that that will typically give me 75 or 100 grams of carbohydrates um and 20 25 grams of protein which will stimulate muscle photosynthesis. It will get that carbohydrates into the system. So it'll be more. It'll be more carbs than that actually, because I didn't. I didn't consider the carbs of the um, milk or the fruit. So it'll be about 120 grams of carbs um, and 20 grams of protein. Really, really, kind of energy dense recovery shake that I've made myself. Obviously, you can get your own recovery shakes from different brands science in sport talk whatever it might be but that's how you make your own um i typically also add my creatine into that as well for no timing reason other than it's when i remember to take it so there's no not necessarily a massive benefit to it directly post-workout and then what i do is is i've i've had that shake um and then i'll i'll finish consuming that shake, get a shower, get myself clean, get myself in a state where I feel a bit more human, get all the sweat off me and so on. I, one of the worst things to do for me is to get back from a ride and then just like sit down on the sofa in my sweaty, horrible cycling gear while I have my recovery shake because I'll end up not moving and within the space of about three minutes, I just feel shit. <laughs> so I always make sure that I don't sit down. I just have that shake, go straight up to the shower, have a nice kind of coldish shower for a couple of minutes, get out, and then within about an hour of having the shake, I'll then make sure that I'm having a decent meal. So that might be my lunch or my tea. Um... But yeah, to answer your question specifically, carbs or protein for recovery, 
the priority should be carbohydrates. Protein should be included in your post-workout meal, but there is not as much emphasis on having it directly post-workout. As long as you're getting in a protein serving within roughly two hours of finishing your, your session, then, then that's kind of the main priority. But think about protein as more of like a daily target, which is evenly spread throughout the day, as opposed to a massive dump of it directly post-workout. We've been talking for a fairly substantial amount of time. This has gone way over what I thought it would do. <laughs> so um, I'm going to round the podcast off there. Thank you very much for listening. I'll hopefully get another one out next week. It might be on post-workout nutrition. It might be on something completely different. I haven't decided yet. But thank you very much and see you again next time.